So I'm feeling very tender tonight, and I uh, want to make sure everyone uh, works uh, within the talk um, and tries, I'll try to make it as plain spoken uh, and as relevant as I can. <clears throat> and I want to uh, just mention uh, that this is a new series, Continua of Practice. And uh, it, what I attempt to do, or what I want to do, is to show you the common patterns that all practices have, uh, but perhaps more importantly, uh, to, for you each to discover your own uh, um, individual practice within all of these continua that I will be talking about over uh, these many weeks that this will continue. And, uh, and I've created a schemata, uh, a, uh, a diagram, uh, that sort of looks at the major uh, phases of, of a practice as it evolves. <clears throat> and uh, want to just briefly uh, talk about that, uh, although it's a repetition from last week. Matter of fact, I guess I, I won't. I'll, what I'll do is bring the talk that I have prepared for the continua, which is from the divided mind to the unified mind, and talk about those markers on that particular scale that you see in front of you. Uh, but one thing I want to mention about the scale is that it looks linear, and there's no way to talk uh, or have a scale that doesn't, uh, that isn't paradoxical, because uh, the scale, although it looks like a journey forth and is often depicted as a journey forth in some of the um, imagery, the mythical imagery that uh, spiritual journeys hold, uh, it really isn't a linear journey. It's more of a journey of depth down. <clears throat> and the same thing that we see at one point, we see with a very different set of eyes at another point. One could say that it was because of all the practices one did in order to arrive at that point of greater depth. But in fact, uh, the, that which we, how we perceive is what changes, not uh, the enormous amount of work we do to get there. The willingness to change our perception, the willingness to concede uh, that uh, the practice is moving us away from the normal ways that we perceive, which is subject-object, this and that, you and me, and the tensions that that perception brings. So really, it's, it's simply a matter of, of figure ground switch, really. Uh, and, the, and the journey forth is a journey of preparation for that uh, figure ground switch. It's a, it's a journey in which uh, there is a, a certain uh, preparation needed. Most of us uh, mostly are afraid to see life differently than the way it's showing up for us morning after morning when we get out of bed. That doesn't mean that life is the way it is to us when we get out of bed in the morning. It's the way we want to perceive it. And the, 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 the journey uh, usually takes time because of that reluctance. 
And there's a number of events along the way that allow us to concede the point that we have been fooled, that what we have taken life to be isn't. And what we have taken ourselves to be within life is, uh, has been very limited. So uh, tonight I want to talk about the first actual continuum. Uh, and this is a beautiful continuum. I mean, I don't like to pat myself on the back too frequently, but I have heard anyone speak about the spiritual journey in this particular way, or actually from a sense of continuum. Uh, and so this is a, a series that's, uh, I would say, uniquely my presentation. So you can discard it with that. He's not worth listening to or whatever <laughs> way you want to, or not. Uh, but let me, uh, let me uh, talk to you for a minute about the divided mind and the unified mind. I mean, if you look, uh, there's many, many ways that we, our mind divides out, doesn't it? Uh, we set boundaries and borders and limitations and we hold people off and we allow certain people in and parts of ourselves are safe and parts of ourselves are unsafe. And so we have a multitude of boundaries that we have sectioned around our mind and around ourselves. Our mind is here, our body is here, this is inside of me, this is outside of me. And uh, those are all held within a mental concept in the brain. Those are the boundaries of our safety. Those are the ways that we feel most relaxed within the tensions of our boundary. But those are the tensions of a divided mind. Those are the tensions of separating out certain things we don't like from what we do. And uh, the opposite, that's the left-hand side of the scale. The right-hand side of the scale is the unified mind, in which the mind isn't pitted against itself. The house divided against itself. And what a unified mind looks is a very a different changed perception because it doesn't hold the tensions of the boundary. It holds a, uh, if it can be put into words, which it really can't, but uh, this is an attempt to do so, it looks more interconnected, boundaryless. It doesn't look separated. Even the space that seems to separate the individual objects that my mind depicts doesn't in fact separate objects. It's seen in a much more unified way. Because one of the ways that the divided mind sections out from the rest of humanity, the rest of the world, the rest of the universe, is by sectioning me out of the mind. Now that's an interesting statement. Because what I'm saying to you is that you do not have a mind. This silence is for drama. <laughs> you do not have a mind. The mind has you. What we perceive of as ourselves is a mental phenomenon within the mind. It's a mental state and an organized way that we wish to perceive the world from the vantage point <clears throat> of ourselves and the rest. So we place the mind outside of ourselves as having a mental experience. 
Now this is really fascinating to me because this continuum is so accessible in that way. Because you can get a sense of yourself and you can get a sense of yourself separate from your mind. And if you're just willing to release the need to continue that separation and distance from those two seemingly disparate objects, you'll find that your vision starts changing in accordance with the unification that releasing the tension allows. Now I, from time to time, like to demonstrate all of us, from all of us, the ability to sense that. And if we're quiet together, you can sense something coming together. Just in a deep, relaxed state, it feels as if things aren't held so far distant from one another. You can feel the physiological fact of that of that unification occurring or beginning to occur before we put on the brakes and claim enough of this homogenation. Let me go back to seeing the way I always have. And in fact, it does. You know, I mean, the brain will organize itself the way you want it to organize. I remember being a psychology student uh, and uh, uh, some back in the 60s and you know as I mentioned in the previous talk having special glasses that invert the top image uh, and doesn't invert the bottom half of the image so essentially your head would be on your waist when I would look through these glasses it would invert the top part of the image uh, but if you stayed with uh, uh, for a little while within those glasses suddenly that everything with all the images would turn around to properly fit in your terms of your expectation and it was rather a dramatic uh, effect that it had was that we see the way we we are conditioned to see the condition to believe it doesn't mean that that is the actual image that's coming into the eye because the actual image that coming into the eye is inverted to begin with it's upside down hitting your retina. Yet quickly, it rearranges that so that everything is right side up. So you can't believe the depiction. The mind is an organizing uh, organ. And it organizes in proper perspective to your expectations. So this sense of division within us is how we wish to see life. And because we have lived so long under this guise and influence and have built a repository of certain images that need this division uh, for their survival, we continue to see life from that point of view. The problem is that when you look at life from a point of view of me and you, this and that, then the, may, the way to access it is through gain, supply, acquisition, desire, fear. Those are the ways, that's the avoidance. Those are the traumas of emotion that arise within that particular depiction, that particular orientation. So when you have that way of looking at the world, you will 
what will accompany the world are all of the emotional upheavals that we have uh, in our life. And the fact of, the, of it is very different than that. You, the sense of you, is a mental process. You are not someone, no one's been able, ever been able to find a you outside of that mental process. In fact, I was watching a show that was showing the MRI of you, where it was located in the brain. I mean, it actually has a, the sense of I has a location within the MRI imagery. And uh, so there's no, there's no place that you are to be found outside of this particular mental expression or idea of you that keeps regenerating itself again and again and believed as something that resides separate from the mind. I have a mind. Let me figure this out. And it hasn't been rejoined. It hasn't been... It hasn't been allowed to rejoin the rest of itself. In fact, because this has something to do with the, the talk in its totality, let me just say that the objects that we perceive external to ourselves are also mental phenomena. How can that be? Because we have learned to separate out in terms of the histories and recognition and memories that we have been associated with those objects to be able to call them what they are. So not only the sense of I, right, is a mental phenomena, but the objects themselves are mental phenomena, and the objects hold all of the associations, past associations we've had with them, the likes, the dislikes, the they don't hold it themselves. Nothing holds that in and of itself. It holds it because we give them, we give that to it. Right? So then the division in the mind is between what I create and project out as an object and the sense of me who's having that perception. And those two are in conflict. I don't like what I see. I want to avoid what I see. I need more of what I see. I want what I see. And so this whole dynamic is set up for us to pursue, may I say, our own tales, when actually it's all mental phenomena rolling on. Don't you find that interesting? Don't, don't get upset. <laughs> Just let it sit with you. And see if it's interesting to you. It's like a cosmology talk. Whoa! <laughs> now, uh, let me talk about a false nirvana. You'll see that on the scale that's in front of you. The false nirvana. False nirvana uh, is, um, is, the, is a moment that we have on our path where we think that uh, we are completely free and completely um, have eliminated the difficulty at hand and that we have crossed over to the far right-hand side of the graph. And there'll be many times within everyone's practice where there will be some catharsis or some rejoining, uh, some bit of ourselves will have 
of been reconnected with. Uh, and in one particular way, I mean, uh, uh, forgiveness is that. If you truly forgive something or someone, there's this tremendous uh, energetic reconnection with that which you have kept uh, outside of yourself for whatever emotional reasons that you have. Uh, so we will feel from time to time those pieces of those boundaries re being removed. But then, of course, we don't acknowledge that as what's actually occurring, which is the mind is healing itself to the rifts of our past. We say, oh, I just forgave him. You know, we keep ourselves distant from the completion of what that means and continue to go on from that point of view. But you can often sense within that shift, a shift of identity. When you have forgiven somebody, truly forgiven them, or when you have surrendered to a fact in front of you, and I don't mean with calculated preference of not having it, but it's in front of me, so I might as well. It's not like a talking journey. Surrender is simply a releasing of the resistance. You'll feel something coming back in place. That's a shift of identity. You see, you might say that's a small moment of awakening. A small moment. Awakening is the unification of the entire mind. But there are many times on our path when there are small moments of where something has regrouped, has been regained, has been reconnected as yours, as, as an intrinsic part. <clears throat> and so a whole level of not only discourse and narrative fades away, but also that sense of tension that the boundaries have created also falls away. It's beautiful when it happens. Some people love it so much that they stay within that particular philosophy or psychology and just try to more and more bring those pieces back together. But again, from, from what we're talking about tonight, it's not about you keeping pieces coming back in, it's about you being a piece in and of itself. This is the big chunk of your mind that doesn't wish to regroup, rejoin. It wishes to have the experience of that rejoining, but it wants to be in control of that joining as well. So it doesn't work so much <clears throat> until we get to the counter influence, and the counter influence is where you realize that uh, if you're going to move further to the right-hand side of the continuum, that you need to surrender yourself to the continuum. See, it's, most of us have had the experience of, of all of the struggles of making our spiritual lives work. And, you know, you're, you're on top of your game. You know, you're struggling with concentration or bringing your attention back or being good or trying to cultivate a particular quality of mind and all of these different tasks that you set in front of you in order to be a fulfilled yogi. <clears throat> uh, at some point, believe it or not, get tiring. And you don't necessarily see that working that well. So uh, you begin to realize that there's a basic tension between you doing something to try to heal the mind, to try to unify it. That that 
There needs to, to be a, a, a wider, wider expanse of what this means to be unified. And it needs to draw me in to that expanse. That's all. So we start considering ourselves as a mental phenomenon. It's not so bad. It actually lightens up a lot. Because with it come all your burdens as also mental phenomena. When they're your burdens, they're not mental phenomena. You know, they're that troublesome neighbor or whatever. But when you realize, just in a moment, oh my God, this thing is arranged completely differently than I thought. That this, uh, that what I need to do is include myself. That's what I call a counter-influence, is that moment of recognition when you realize you can't struggle for your own salvation. That the surest way to force dualism is for you to be engaged in the struggle to be non-dual. It just doesn't happen. But it's noble. And that's part of the reason we continue so long into the journey with ourselves at the helm is because of the nobility of it. Because it feels like I'm doing something worthwhile in my life. But it just isn't a complete, it isn't a complete journey. You know, uh, you begin to see that uh, this thing, every part of it, uh, needs to be embraced in a certain way. And we can't get out of our suffering. Yeah? Does that, that's part of it. So you can't get out of your suffering. You see, what are you going to do if you can't get out of your suffering? You see, because the very struggle is suffering itself. So what is that? See, what is that? It throws the whole thing. It's like now, what, what do I do? There's, there can be a panic in, in that. But what happens is that when we begin to recognize this non-divided, unified mind, all the other truths of Dharma flow naturally in that. All the instructions we give, listen, non-resistance makes perfect sense from a unified mind's point of view. It doesn't make any sense if I am in control of the mind, why not resist it? How about letting be? Why let it be? I, I could do better than this. I can get a better product here, mental product. Why let it be? See, it only makes sense as a unified perception. You have to take these instructions and imply, what does it mean? Not to resist, to let it be. Non-judgmental awareness, why shouldn't it be judgmental? Because the judgment fractures and non-judgment heals. See, that's what I, I love is that when you start seeing it from a whole bunch of different contingencies, it all lines up. There's no 
one piece that doesn't quite fit in that you have to sort of saw it off to make it fit in, don't ever saw off a piece. It either fits in or it doesn't. If it doesn't fit in, something's wrong with the way you're doing it. Anger. See, the, Christ said, uh, he said, uh, resist not evil. Doesn't make any sense. Why not resist evil? Why not resist evil? Because when you do, there's greater evil. Resist not evil. Or he said, I love some of his quotes because they fit this. So, be whole as your Father in heaven is whole. It's so clear from a unified mental point of view that, of course, of course, to be like my Father in heaven, or you can use your own metaphor, a unified mind. Just metaphors. And one of the ways that we can start inching ourselves forward in, in this sense of unification is just to remind us from time to time when we are acting as if there were two things because our perceptions seem to indicate that. Just to say not to. Not to. Not to. When you're in the heated discussion, when the person pulls in front of you on I-5, not to. You see that that what we it needs to be practiced. It needs to it needs to bring we need to change the belief system in ourselves. We do that both through insight but also through the actual actions we take. Much of our righteous indignation is deeply embedded in that not to. We know there's not to, but we don't know how to act in proper alignment with that. So we get indignant with those who are opposing our true and connected beliefs that the earth, that humanity should. You see, those are, those are coming from a deep, inspiring sense of not to. But then we act from two. And that's why that, that counter-influence is so important to perceive. So this continuum is both a practice and a direction. A beautiful sutta, which I gave 40 talks on, so if you're interested in it, you can go back to, <laughs> I think it was talk 27, no, I don't know the talk. <laughs> but it was uh, the four foundations of mindfulness, the third foundation. And in that foundation, the Buddha talks about different uh, qualities of mind arising. But what's so interesting is that he didn't, he said, notice when your mind is concentrated, notice when your mind is not concentrated. Notice when there is benevolent and loving kindness. Notice when your anger, the anger, uh, uh, when you're angry. Notice this, but also notice it's opposite. Notice that, but also notice it's opposite. He made no distinguishment about, wit, about going with one and siding with, not siding with the other. He, see what he was saying? 
Now, we, you know, there are times in proper, uh, proper situations in which skillful means, which is pitting one side of your mind against the other, has some relevance. But again, as I mentioned in my first talk, this talk is trying to show you more the absolutes of the mind rather than the skillful means that most of us navigate within from time to time. Skillful means is trying to cultivate a certain quality of ourself because the counter uh, emotional involvement in it is so uh, dramatic in our mind that we can't balance it very well. We can't just notice it. We lose ourselves within it. Right? We all have emotions and reactive situations in which that happens. So that's an important consideration. But for this talk, get what the Buddha is talking about. He's talking about non-polarity. He's talking about a unification. He says it doesn't matter what is arising in your mind. Leave the mind alone is another way of saying it. It's not hurting anybody. It just feels like that to the person outside of the mind that's taking its position, his or her position in relationship to those particular mental phenomena. But if you did nothing about anger, but, but, gave, it, but gave it a complete warm receptive heart, how disturbed would your environment be with it? How disturbed would you be with it? If you really saw that your spiritual journey depended upon your willingness to take everything not just for what it is and not seek its opposite, how many of us would be willing to do that? But that's what it's calling us to do. And the sutta is such a beautiful, beautiful representation of that teaching. It answers how to work cooperatively with the mind. That's a question that all of us should take very seriously. How do I work cooperatively with my mind? Fair enough. How do I? And this is the teaching. You see, it's not saying that you don't have a part or role to play. Being totally attentive to what's arising in the mind. You don't become passive. Your passivity is, if, is a statement <clears throat> or reaction to what's going on in the mind. Attentiveness is not a reaction to anything. <clears throat> Attentiveness is a total embrace of what's occurring. If you say, oh, I don't need to do anything, just leave it alone, that's a whitewash. <clears throat> So you need to show up, <laughs> but show up within the totality of yourself as well. See, most of us for a long period of time don't get a sense of us even being here somehow. We miss it. I can feel my breath. I can feel the emotions, pain in my knee, but me? I don't, I don't get a sense of me. Just go back a step. We're too used to identifying with that to be able to get a sense of it. Just, just step back. Just, and then you get a, oh, whoa, wait a minute. This, the field's opening up here. 
And the phases of practice, often at one phase, there's a watcher, which is a subtle form of me, watching or paying attention to what the mind is doing. But the watcher really is still the, in a, uh, of a extremely uh, subtle aspect of ourself who still holds him or herself outside of the whole manifestation of mental phenomena. And so, at some point, you begin to sense that watcher is in conversation, can be heard. It's a very, it's a more subtle sense of me, but it's there jabbering nevertheless. And as we, I tuned attention to that sense of conversation, I'm having with very subtly about the things that are arising. Suddenly, I'm enveloped within that seeing, and seeing does not have a seer. There's just seeing. Now the mind is, in fact, encased within, for lack of a better word, seeing. And seeing is unified. You see? It has no separation in seeing. There's no separation in seeing. There's separation in me seeing because one form is looking at other forms. But if forms are also conjured up by the mind to represent what I know them to be, then I'm just looking from that perspective of form looking at form. And when form looks at form, it brings in a whole set of attitudes that only form has, like comparison and contrast and judgment and desire and fear. When form looks at form, you can expect that interchange. You can expect that dynamic to occur. But when seeing sees, seeing does not or cannot see in terms of separation. Because the observer, the sense of me, has not been separated out. And the sense of me held the knowledge by which I could depict any form. But now that that knowledge is part of the scene, see if you can follow me here, that knowledge is part of the scene, the whole thing is seen. It's not so hard. It's not so hard. It's hard to say. It's hard to say. But each of us have all that we need in order to do that. We have our intentionality, we have awareness, and we know what awareness is seeing. And at some point, the subtlety of who is and what it is that's looking will become more and more noticeable to you. <clears throat> and so you just include that as part of the scene. Another way, a way that I, um, I love to present this is that you have to deeply love your humanity. 
See, that's what the Buddha was saying. He's saying there's nothing wrong. Pit something against one thing against the other. There's something wrong. If with the thing itself just arising, love that. There's a there's a love for the expression of humanity. The complete range of what our mind can do is phenomenal, really. And you just you just concede the point and say, whoa, this is amazing. And when you concede the point, it all becomes seen. So that deep love of humanity is certainly one aspect of the unification of mind. The other part that I like to suggest people use is what I call the practice of wholeness. Look at what you believe is outside of yourself and prove it is within yourself, within the mind. Look and see what's outside of the mind that you think is outside and prove that it's within the mind. Okay, so we start off and we think, okay, my thoughts are mine and they're in communication with what I'm seeing outside of myself. I have a narrative going on and I can say, you know, I don't particularly like this emotion that I'm having. Let me uh, do some adjustment. Maybe I'll change friends or whatever and change the emotion, uplift myself. So all of that dialoguing, we take it to be us as commentary on what is occurring within the mind. But in deepening quietude, what you'll notice is that the commentary is a mental, is thought. That's one that many of you in the room already have seen. That thought is not about me looking at, it's about, what is it? I don't even know. It's a, it's definitely a mental phenomenon, but I still, after 40 years of practice, can't tell you what it is. Words of the mind, that's what it is. So I bring that into the mind. Okay, so thoughts are really part of the mind. I'm not outside looking at the mind and jabbering about the jabbery is part of it. Okay, so that was a very central element of us. That seemed to be who I was, the, the, the commentator of what it is that's occurring. And I was having emotions about what I was seeing as well, but when I look at what their emotions are occurring, they're also occurring within the mind. You see, and so I, now I'm getting confused because those are two big forms of my identity, my emotions and my thoughts. So what else lies outside of there? And I just gently bring it into the fold as well. Now this continuum really talks very clearly about two different styles of practice. If we're going to line it up, we have to line up the activities of our spiritual journey within these two practices. One of them is my effort to succeed, what I call effort in repair because wherever you're efforting you're breaking yourself apart and you've got to go back and repair it because of the overextended force and ambition that such effort does. So effort in repair, cultivating a good quality because I've learned 
to mistrust myself and thinking that those qualities weren't there. I've got to go out and try to find them and bring them in. Sort of what I call the spiritual scavenger hunt. So that's one style of practice. But that style of practice doesn't understand the unified mind. It stays divided. There's no unification within that style. What are we practicing towards? What's the resolution of our journey? We should ask that question. And then the second style is the practice of wholeness. The practice of non-dispute, of non-argument, of releasing. You see, why are you doing that? Because you're unified. There's a unification. It's a beautiful practice. You want a heart practice? That's a heart practice. Because what you are releasing the divisions into is your heart. The heart is whole. You heal the mind at the source. And the healing is not just unification, me feeling a un- like a unified person. What, what good would that be? It's unification of the cosmos. Yeah, the little green men. It's unification. It's unification of all things. Unification of all things. See, it's, much, it's always much bigger than just me. Always. It started out problematically as me working on the internal logistics of it. But there's an escape clause also on your continuum called wakefulness, which shows you conclusively that you were never alone, you were never isolated, you were never separate. Conclusively, beyond doubt. And that lies within the spirit of everyone's journey, if we so wish. Or if we want to find and only hold life to be what it's always been to us, the perceptions that have always grounded us in ourselves and others, then that will be the end journey of your journey. Not because it has to be, but because you've wanted it to be. It's always up to us, you see. Okay, oh, thank you. Can we sit for a minute or two? See, as you sit, what's not being included? Don't leap too quickly to your righteousness. 
Silence is the indicator. Silence shows us. Because in division, there's no silence because we are constantly talking ourselves out of the unification. That's what does it. That's what makes the boundaries and substantial is our thinking that they're not and our constant narrative that says you and I or me alone there's problems. There can be a problem anywhere with anything. And if we want division we will find a problem because a problem is necessary in order for division to be to be the perception of choice. And so if we're going to move and keep and maintain divisive, a divisive mind, it's going to be a divisive life we serve. Okay, all, if there are any questions or comments about anything, I'd be happy to if I could answer. Yes. The practice what? It's a practice down. Yes, I certainly can. Uh, so I mentioned that, you know, the journey really isn't a, a um, a journey from one place to another. It's not a longitudinal journey. It's not a, a journey of space and time and distance. It's a journey down. <clears throat> well, the reason that we don't see in a correct fashion has to do with the amount of ignorance, the, the unwillingness to see. And we, we uh, some of it is intentional. We just deny what's there. Others is that we haven't been properly trained how to look to see whether there's anything other than what we believe. And we try to make what we believe a comfortable life for ourselves. So if we're going to operate from that sense of ourselves, then it is a longitudinal journey. And I have distance to cover and I've got to be a nicer person and I'm not quite nice enough and I've got more niceness before I can die quietly and hopefully with a smile on my face, right? Okay, so that's a different way of, there's a, also a, a depth instead of a longitudinal journey. It's a, it's a, it's a, um, a uh, thank you. <laughs> I uh, set these people up in the audience and said, <laughs> it's a vertical journey. It's a drop down. Okay, so some of that is a, a genuine practice-based drop where my mind is settling down, where I realize that relaxation is the guidance system for this, where it's a deepening of what's already here rather than trying to create something that's not, and a deep respect and uh, a deep knowing that everything I so seek is really in me and 
uh, that all I have to do is discover that. So it's not a journey away, it's a journey of depth down. And the deeper we go, the more common elements are known. At the surface, everything seems to be based on appearance and reaction to appearance because that's the surface tension that most of us live within. Like spiders walk on that spider, water spiders just walk on the tension of the surface of water. Most of us are water spiders in appearances. That's all the deeper we'll go. And we want it to stop there because we're afraid of what's deeper down that we might expose if, we, if the spider sank to any depth. So there's a courage in even getting below the tensions of the water. But most of you have successfully submerged at least beyond that water tension and you begin to see the common, as you submerge, you begin to see what we have in common as opposed to what we have in contrast. And that begins to alter the way, the landscape of how we perceive. Uh, when we journey and we begin to see from common humanity, for instance, as opposed to the appearances of differences, that's a journey of, of unification of heart, you might say. And so that journey, as it plummets down deeper and deeper, really begins to become more and more unified and uh, united within that depth. And you've gone nowhere. You've just been willing to see what you have resisted seeing in the past. That's all the spiritual journey is. It's like that pebble that you plump into a pond and it just goes right to the surface. So too, when you go right to the surface, you begin to see the depth of our common, of our common nature. And one of, the, one of the things on that journey down that the pebble uh, has to perceive is the sense of separation. It has to move through the sense of separation to see that commonality. Okay. Yes? By what? The, the what? The see? Okay, so have you, do you have a meditation practice? If you look at your meditation practice, you'll notice there's a commentator back there who's, it has a lot to say just about, ev about everything. Uh, and no matter how gross or, it's just, it has an opinion about something, right? So that's all I'm saying. And then at some point, uh, you know, it gets quieter because you're on to the, to the logistics of it. You're on to the big eruptions of noise. And, you, and so you've been willing to quiet yourself down, which is another word for going down deeper. The quieter you become, the more common element. But you still, at some point in that rock's dissension, begin to see, sense that it's still commenting, although quietly, about, you know, being quiet. Oh, I, I'm quiet now. Boy, this is interesting. God, look at this. I'm feeling united. Oh, right? <laughs> it's quite cute. <laughs> but it isn't complete. And so uh, you, go, you, go, you start attending it because the nature of awareness is that it's always more subtle than the form that it's, a, that it's perceiving. So just a minute, hands, <laughs> let me finish that thought. Which means 
that it always, if you want it, if you want it to be so, it will always see what form is expressing itself within that awareness. It'll always see that. If it weren't, there would be no, there would be no salvation, there would be no freedom. It would be a lost cause. But because of the subtlety of that awareness and your desire to be quiet along with it in order to see, it starts noticing at a more and more nuanced level what it sees, including the very quiet commentator that's still there. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, good. Yes, Okay, so it's terminology. The watcher, I separate out as the sense of watching with slight, subtle commentary, right? So it's not a complete watching. It's much improved, and nice things are being said, perhaps, in that commentary. And we want to hear the nice things. So we're really <laughs> what did I just say to myself? Oh, well, maybe I'm getting towards self-love after all these years. So there's a leaning, a spiritual leaning in that can capture us for a long period of time. Or we can get wondrous about how quiet we are. God, this is amazing. And then you get the egoic say, wow, this, is, this shows really that I'm advanced. <laughs> 20,000 leagues under the sea now. So all of that is everyone's, most people's experience over time is that sense of... Uh, of egoic form that keeps showing itself. But you see, what, you, what we need to have uh, at a very, um, at the very beginning and, and hone it all along the way is the desire to know the truth. Because that's the, why would you want to move outside of something that feels like a false nirvana. You know, this is where I've always wanted to be. I didn't want all of this. I wanted to have a mind clear of forgiveness or whatever it might be. You see, you, you get to that place and the only thing, the only salvation from resting there forever or until you die is that that's not the truth. And you know it's not the truth. And it's very pleasant truth, but it's not the truth because you can hear it and you know what you hear is not the truth. And so then you're willing to move and venture even further down. It's our salvation. And the heart, that's where the heart becomes so, um, so receptive that it refuses the greatest temptation. That's the devil and Christ in the desert, where the devil says, you can have anything. You want the world, you can have the world. This is an internal dialogue. At what point Christ says, no, I don't want any of that. What did he want? He wanted the truth. So that's what he ends up with, not the devil's products. Thank you all. Thank you all.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.